Howdy, everybody, and welcome to another BP Movie Journal, the show we do where we talk about the stuff we've seen since the last time we did one of these. I'm David. I'm Tyler. Let's jump right in. Okay. Let me just open up my Letterboxd app. Oh. I've joined Letterboxd. Okay. Why are you um, saying it like that? Because uh, it's new to me. Sure. It just still sure. feels new in my mouth. Okay. The word's Letterboxd. Well, yeah, a, a listener emailed me and was like... I follow Tyler. How come you're not on Letterboxd? And I was like, I've never thought about it. What? What is? It? <laughs> like I don't. Yeah. I don't think I even realized what it was. And um, so yeah, it's kind of fun. I haven't like like used the like write a review feature. I don't really either. I'll do if I have a review written on like BP or okay. NTOL, I'll post like the first paragraph and then I'll link to the review. Oh, okay. Okay. You know, What's the point oh, of having a letterbox unless I can, you know, you, that's not a bad it. idea. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, I don't know. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll start, uh, putting some thoughts in there. Maybe it'll be like a note taking thing for the movie journal. Oh, nice. Yes. Uh, cause that's so far. This is the, as I have, I have a list right here that has everything, uh, right here. I can click on the thing and see, you know, go to the director and go to whatever. So, uh, yeah, not brought to you by letterbox. There's no advertising on the movie journal. That's right. As a general rule. Someday. <laughs> not maybe. to say we're not open to it. Yeah. We just so far, there's no advertising on the movie journal. Yeah. If you're somebody who would like to advertise on the movie journal, just shoot us an email and, uh, make sure that the price is right. Yeah. Um, okay. So, uh, let's get started. Okay. Uh, I watched, this is going to be, all end of 20, just 2017. That's okay. all I've been doing, um, is getting ready for our next few weeks of, uh, uh, year end wrap up leading up to the Oscars yeah. on the, on the main, uh, numbered, uh, canonical episodes. So I really a, should be doing that. That's all I've been doing. Okay. So, uh, that's what all you're going to get today. So I watched, um, well, let me look at the director's name. I watched Trey Edward Schultz's it comes at night. Oh, okay. Did you see this? I did not. So it's, um, uh, I mean, it's generally, I mean, certainly marketed as, and generally described as a as a horror film, and it definitely, you know, it it has the 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 tone of that genre. But I also feel like I would hesitate to recommend it to someone as a horror film because right. it's not um, that's not really the kind of movie it is. It just sort of like it just. It, it establishes the kind of dread of a horror movie and then just wallows in it for an hour and a half. Yeah. Um, and I mean that as a good thing. I think it's a very good movie. I think it's beautifully shot. Um, From what I hear, a lot of traditional horror fans were very disappointed in it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because there's, yeah. Uh, I mean, you don't even really know what it comes, at, you don't even know what it yeah. is. Really. And then when it does show up, it's 1 p.m. <laughs> <laughs> this thing um, is just just throws you uh but uh yeah it start uh i guess it's it's definitely an ensemble uh of a movie it's got um uh joe ledgerton um and carmen ejogo is that how you say her name oh okay yeah um yeah and, and uh and then you've got um uh the the younger so they they some sort of event has happened they live in the house all boarded up they wear gas masks when they go outside there's some mm-hmm. sort of disease that has killed most people I guess okay. uh, and then they live in their house they're self sufficient whatever um, but they have a lot of rules for the 
safety and survival of this three unit family, them and their, and their son. Uh, and then one day another family shows up looking for shelter. Um, and they with a very young child and they're played by uh, a couple of actors that I really, really like, uh, in general, Christopher Abbott, you okay. know, who he is, he was on girls. That's where I first yeah, no, I don't. Um, knew of him, but he was also in piercing, which I saw at Sundance, which is great in that. And then Riley Keough or cow. I'm not sure how you say that her name. name. Does sound familiar. Uh, she's terrific. I like her in a lot of things. She was, um, uh, yeah, she's been in a lot of stuff, but she was in, uh, uh, American Honey last year. Oh, okay. And she was also in Love Song, which I think was two years ago, or was that last year? I can't remember, but that was uh, her and Jenna Malone. That's a, a really good movie. Anyway, so they play they play a couple, and uh, really, I guess, um, yeah, the, the movie is just sort of about um, trust and mistrust and uh, sort of boiling the idea of priority prioritizing your family first down to uh, or at least taking it to its logical conclusion like you know how much uh what kind of behavior or precautions can you justify what kind of not sure uh, you know what what kind of impassive cruelty to others can you justify in the name of keeping your family safe. It's yeah. really interesting uh, movie full of great performances. And like I said, beautifully shot and full of, full of dread. And there is some, definitely some horror imagery. The, the son, I'm uh, forgetting his name. He was just, in, he was also in a movie that I saw. Uh, it's on this Kelvin Harrison jr. Is his name. Um, who, if there is a lead of, of the movie, it's, it's there. It's a uh, Joel Edgerton and, and Carmen Jogo's son. Um, uh, he has nightmares, and so you, you definitely get some horror stuff there. Uh, moving on to this is my Riley Keough double feature. Apparently, I didn't uh, intend it that way. I watched, and I can't remember if you've seen this or not. Okay, I watched Steven Soderbergh's Logan Lucky. Uh, I have seen that. Yes, you have. I love this movie. Okay, Tyler. Okay, I love it um, uh, because uh, it's a. It's a comedy. It's probably my favorite comedy of the year. Now that I think about it, of 2017, um, and also this is going to sound weird for this movie, especially yeah. for a Steven so- Steven Soderbergh tends to be kind of uh, you know it's sort of in the same ballpark as the Coens in terms of uh, a certain emotional remove from his sure. movies, sure. and yet in a year 2017 had a bunch of great movies. <clears throat> but here's the thing: I'm generally an easy crier at yeah. movies very few movies in 2017 brought me to tears and weirdly of all the movies yeah logan lucky is it during the recital during the recital yeah it's hard it's, to beat it's so it's such a beautiful moment uh we'll actually be talking about this um uh, a little bit on the main here's a teaser for uh, this this coming uh, oh. this week's main episode um uh I just thought it was, it was, it, it, it was delightful. And it's, it's, um, I can't remember whom I'm quoting or paraphrasing now. Cause I, you know, re, you know, read through a bunch of reviews from critics that I like after, especially after I like a movie that sure. I generally, after I see a movie, I will then go, you know, 
uh, see what other people had to say about it, but especially mm-hmm. if I liked the movie. Uh, and someone, I can't remember who said that Logan Lucky is a moon uh, is a movie made by a director who has, who feels he has nothing to prove. And that's how I feel about Steven Soderbergh is he's like, I'm just going to do what I want here. I'm yeah. going to make this fun movie. I'm going to, have fun with the like oceans 11 style, like have fun with the, with the plot, but also some of the stuff is just pretending to be a complicated plot and doesn't actually pay off, which is not a complaint. I don't mind that at all. You know, there's a whole, like, I don't know if you remember, like when they, when they recruit Daniel Craig's younger brothers, one of the things they need them for is for, he says, they said they they, they need someone who's a computer whiz. (laughs) Yeah. And it leads to a funny joke. Like I know everything. I know all the Twitters and everything yeah. like that, but that never, they don't end up doing anything with computers at all. Right. It doesn't matter. Uh, and, and it's not, they a, don't seem to need an explosive expert either. Like I feel there like there's something that. like they needed something in order to reverse the flow yeah. or something. Yeah. Like that. Yeah. It, it does seem like they didn't need it, but I can't, I don't, I didn't care because yeah. it, I feel like you can, uh, you know, I mean, the the classic example of this is who, you know, who heard uh, Charles Foster Kane say Rosebud, right. you know, and it's like it doesn't it doesn't matter. Raymond the butler, but that's fine. <laughs> um, yeah, Raymond the butler, who is in the hall with the revolver <laughs> <laughs> um, when when Charles Foster Kane whispered Rosebud. Yeah. Eh. It's an echoey. It's an echoey place, <laughs> okay. Xanadu. Um, I think the point is that if a movie is good enough, that and this, I mean, this very much fits with my general approach to movies, um, which is that uh, plot is like like barely in the top ten things that I care right. about in a movie, right. and so I feel like uh, if a movie can be good and still not make sense, um, uh, then that proves my uh, it proves that i'm right about the way that movies are supposed to or or at least what i like about movies now here's what i'll say is i i don't know if this is my favorite comedy of the year although i'm hard-pressed to think of another one at the moment but it does have my favorite one of my favorite overall exchanges of 2017 Uh and no question my favorite comedic exchange of 2017 and that is when Dwight Yoakam is talking about Game of Thrones Thrones, like you don't get funnier than that like and I thought he was great yeah Uh, I thought I thought the cast in general did uh really well and and were able to play the moments of pathos and comedy like in that uh in the recital scene which is really powerful yeah uh, I'm just looking at my list to see what my favorite comedies of the year are. And I feel like this wasn't a great year for like comedy comedies, I, you know, I, I, like I Phantom honestly, Thread is funny. Right. Get, out, Get out has jokes in it. I, Tanya is funny. The Meyerowitz stories is, I guess the, the Meyerowitz stories I think is pretty much a comedy. Okay. Um, but it's still a Noah Baumbach comedy, yeah. which is like the square cringy at times. Yeah. The square is a very cringy comedy. I'm trying to think like, I mean, and then I saw the it, death of Stalin at Sundance, but it hasn't come out in right. the U.S. yet. Um, I mean, yeah. the Big Sick is kind of a comedy, but it's a drama comedy. Um, yeah, yeah, Big Sick is very funny. The so, Disaster yeah. Artist is, you know, Disaster Artist I think is very funny. It's in very fact, funny. It's funny enough to sort of paper over some of the stuff I don't care for because I laughed so consistently throughout the disaster artist. I mean, it's something that actually, uh, I think Josh and I have talked about over at uh, more than one lesson is that like, I, 
maybe it's that when when these are released, I don't see them. But I feel like it's pretty rare to see a comedy that's just a comedy, you know. And I know that sounds weird, but like looking at my list here, it's like okay, big sick. Okay, well, a it's based on a true story and it's a drama comedy. Right. Disaster artist is a biopic kind yeah. of. Uh, you know, well, there's stuff like the Lego Batman movie, which is right. a comedy undoubtedly, and but very it's funny. also this other thing. Um, um, I'm thinking of the, uh, I don't know how, how I forgot to mention girls trip. Girls trip is the, as far a movie that is setting out to be a comedy yes. first and foremost and succeeds yeah. and is hilarious. Girls trip is maybe the best comedy comedy of 2017. Like I thought, um, I thought Jumanji was hilarious, but it's like, it's mixed in with all this other stuff. Right. And that tends to be how comedy is these days. Um, um okay. yeah. Yeah, you're right. Um, okay, uh, I guess it's yeah, it's your turn. All right, I at long last and at great peril, I saw Paul <laughs> Thomas Anderson's Phantom Thread. And what, I, what, is that just a joke at great peril? No, or? I was at par- I was I was uh, in danger of murdering someone when I went to the theater to see it. Oh, okay. I left a half hour in. I went to the NoHo Seven which is usually a pretty dependable theater. Uh-huh. Uh, and I saw, it was Friday night, I saw like a 10 p.m. show, and I settled in, and I was like, God, I, was, I, love, I was loving what I was seeing. And this guy behind me, all alone, I hope he was drunk. Uh-huh. I feel like he would have to be. But during the, uh, the ordering scene, you know, ordering food, like, oh, when yeah. the, you know, which is... Uh, there's a lot going on in that scene. Yeah. Uh, this guy decided to comment on the scene, uh, in which he goes, riveting. <laughs> yeah. Could so you move the, like 10 PM? You could have moved, was, right? He was loud enough that everybody could hear him. Here's the other thing. He started, uh, laughing loudly. Now as we, the movie is amusing, Obviously, sometimes uh, it's flat out funny. Sometimes, yeah, I, yeah. Uh, I and so the the scene where he is uh, fitting her and measuring her, and he says that you know he says that he tosses out that line, "You have no breast," like yeah. just almost subliminally, you know. Yeah, which is and th- there's a laugh there of incredulity. I think maybe um, yeah. I I, I like, found I I don't think I've seen it twice now. I I don't think I laughed at that part and um the second time I saw it, I was more aware of people laughing at that. And I think you're right. Maybe that's, it's just, it's such an uncomfortable thing to say. And just the uh, fact but, that he would say it and yeah. have no qualms about it. Like yeah. that's the way I, I see it. I don't think that's meant to be a pure laugh line. Right. Uh, so this guy chuckled at that. And then when he said, and then she said, Oh, I'm sorry. And he goes, no, no, it's fine. I, it's my job to give you some if I choose to. Uh-huh. And this guy had, not only did he laugh big, you know, my standard is I always say like, Oh, it's like a max Katie laugh from, uh, from Cape fear. That uh-huh. Scorsese. Yeah. It wasn't that it was more annoying than that. Um, <laughs> it was, uh, I'll see if I, I'm going to move the mic away from my okay, mouth. Okay. And so it was, if I, if I choose to, and he goes, so it's that it's, you know, a Frank Gorshin Riddler type laugh. And then when, when what's her name? Um, Leslie Manville says like, Oh no, he likes a little belly. Then the guy just kept laughing like that. I was like, okay, I'm done. Yeah. I'm going to fucking murder this guy. I hope he's drunk. He needs to have his teeth knocked in. Y- that yeah. Guy. Like yeah. I just don't understand. And here's the thing. Like 
I'm willing to forgive laughter. It's an involuntary, involuntary response. Right. But I think it was self-conscious and Mm -hmm. I think it was heightened probably because he was drunk. I have no idea what that guy was doing in that theater at all. Um, he wasn't, I'm sorry to be, uh, to say this, uh, having looked at him, he was not a uh, homeless gentleman looking to just get out of the actually quite pleasant weather we've been having. Um, he was a guy just about our age, maybe a little bit younger, looked a little fratty. And, uh, so I went and got a, I got a refund and I immediately drove to somebody's house, got the screener, came home and watched it. And I was like, wow, this is really good. Okay. So that's the story. Okay. Uh, boy, what a marvelous film. Yeah. I mean, of course it's, you know, Paul, T- admittedly, I didn't love inherent vice like some people did. Um, but you know, Paul Thomas Anderson or the Coens or, or any number of filmmakers that you know they are good and you know they are unique. And then you hear like, oh, this such this movie is 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 very good. And you're like, yeah, I'm sure it is. And then you go and see it and you're like, oh right. <laughs> this person is probably a genius, uh, artistically. Like right. and in many ways this this is a very much a Paul Thomas Anderson movie, but he also is playing different beats. Mm-hmm. He's engaging in different genres, uh, though it's not immediately clear that yeah. that's what he's doing. Um, he he's engaging in different tones than we're used to from him. Like there's there's it's not at all uncommon for him to have a, a certain histrionic tone in his films. This is not that, uh, except th- it is that, but it's all contained. Um, it is gorgeous to look at and so meticulous, but effortlessly. So there's a nice flow to it as well. Um, to say nothing of just these amazing performances all the way around, not merely the, the primary three, but these other characters that kind of come in and out of, of the story. Mm -hmm. I mean, because I'm going to be talking about it in our top 10 episode. Like, I don't want to say too much about it here. Right. Um, except that I just, I, I absolutely adored it. And I think it's, it might be flawless. Yeah. I think I'm with you on that. All right. All right. Um, I watched, I I followed up Logan lucky with lucky. Okay. uh, John Carroll Lynch film that was Harry Dean Stanton's final uh, leading role. Now you know what my follow-up question will be. <laughs> I have not seen Logan. Okay. <laughs> I have a screener, but I have not I have not seen it. Um, yeah. Um, anyway, uh, so and you haven't seen Lucky? I have not. Um, I think you you definitely would dig it. Probably, um, yes. It's just Harry Dean Stanton playing a Harry Dean Stanton type who's uh, uh, an old man in a very small southwestern like, not quite like perfection from tremors small but a very small town uh he lives alone never married doesn't have any kids that he's sure of to that's his that's his line um uh and he it's uh, i think it's just sort of a i'm trying i i can't imagine anyone other than harry dean stanton playing this role because it seems to be such a uh testament to his stubborn continuing to be aliveness for so long, sure. you know, sure. he was 91, you know, and he still smoked and, and drank, but he also, this is the real Harry Dean Stanton. Um, the character lucky, um, which I don't think is his real name, but I'm not sure we ever, I, can't, I don't think we ever, 
uh, learn his real name. We found out he was called Lucky because in the Navy he was um, he was in World War II, but he was a cook and never saw any action mm-hmm. at all, and he was like called Lucky because he yeah. uh, got to stay on the ship and cook stuff and <laughs> never um, saw any battle. Um, uh, but it, this movie, like I said, is a testament to his perseverance uh, or to the perseverance of a character like him. You know, um, he's told, uh, who's the actor? I always forget his name. He's a great actor. This movie is full of so many character actors. I'm sure. He's, I don't know why this is the role that always sticks out because he's in a gajillion things. But remember in Collateral, the guy who owned the jazz club? <sighs> You know what I'm talking about, right? Yes, I do. I absolutely do. His name's Barry something. He's a great actor. Yeah, he is. Uh, he plays the diner owner here, and he and uh, Lucky is continually trying to light up indoors where you can't smoke in this movie. Uh, and this is very early on in the scene that the guy from Collateral uh, tells him those things will kill you. And Harry Dean Stanton says, if they could have, they would have. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. At that point. I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, Barry, uh, Shabaka Henley, Shabaka Henley. Okay. Yes. Um, yeah. So he's in it. Beth Grant is in it. David Lynch is in it. Uh, Ron Livingston Ed Begley jr. Uh, Tom Skerritt. There's a brief, uh, hey, alien reunion that's there. Fun. Uh, I feel like I'm probably even missing another, uh, another big name, um, character actor who's in the movie. Uh, but it's a it's a very episodic sort of uh, bunch of uh, vin- vignettes that are mostly, I would say, dryly comedic or sometimes just absurdly comedic, uh, but also incredibly touching. And like I said, like I you know I just named uh, a bunch of actors in the movie who's like who's the youngest but like is is that guy the youngest or, or maybe beth grant like the youngest he is only 63 uh, beth grant might be the youngest but uh, it's between those two uh, yeah yeah so it's a oh ron livingston is younger than sure, sure. um uh, uh and so it is a definitely a movie that is i think uh it's a it's a uh what's the word i'm looking for a contemplative comedy about aging and getting closer mm-hmm. to to death and how much um, uh, how much your time on this earth means either moment to moment or over the course of a, of a lifetime. Um, David Lynch plays, uh, a, a, a drinking buddy of he, uh, lucky goes to the bar every, every single night. Um, David Lynch is one of his drinking buddies, uh, as is Beth Grant. Oh, Beth Grant's actually the owner of the bar. Um, and, uh, David Lynch's whole, his whole character's thing is that he has a pet tortoise that got loose. Um, <laughs> the tortoise's name is, uh, president Roosevelt. And they, so, um, every conversation is about the tortoise and there's a little bit of like kind of laughing at him. I think that the other people in the page, in the bar do. And then David Lynch has this incredible monologue about, tortoises that is incredibly touching because they can live to be like as like 200 years old or whatever and so uh it very much fits into the the whole the whole theme uh it's a really really good movie it's it's under 90 minutes um and uh full of full of laughs and uh some heartstring uh tugging i have no doubt Uh, and you still have not seen paris texas correct i've never seen paris texas yeah uh, all right. So yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, we did our 
didn't we do we did a profile of harry dean stanton we did, yes. and neither of us had seen lucky uh consider uh, this a, an addendum we'll edit that in <laughs> yeah there we go um okay so for me this is a rewatch a lot of these will be um as a function of a project i'm doing for school i uh i rewatched ron howard's frost nixon Oh. Um, a film I haven't seen in a very long time. Uh, I don't think you would. I haven't seen it any times. Um, all right. Well, that's all right. Between the two of us, we've seen it a few times. <laughs> there we go. Um, and it is a lot more. Okay. So I was talking about uh, Paul Thomas Anderson and that, like, even though I know he's brilliant, he still surprises me with the ways in which he can be brilliant. In that same way, I really shouldn't be surprised that Ron Howard can just make a very solid, entertaining, engrossing film. He is a very solid filmmaker. He can do that. Um, and when I think of Frost Nixon, I remember thinking like, yeah, it's a pretty good script, but it's based on a play and, you know, and... Uh, good performances all around. Um, but in watching it, like that thing, it moves, it's riveting. Hmm. Um, it's incredibly well edited. It was nominated for editing that year. I think I had forgotten that. Um, and it's just this thing, like it can be very difficult. Admittedly, not everything, not, not the whole film doesn't take place in that room with that Mm -hmm. interview. Like there's a lot of stuff uh, outside of it, but, um, but it's all built around this little one-on-one interview and you have to find all these different ways to shoot it so that it's not just static and boring. And Howard finds a way to do that so that, you know, certain things that might not strike me as particularly impactful are underlined and they let us know that they are. Um, and it's, I wouldn't say it's like an amazing film or anything, but it's incredibly watchable. Um, with great performances, Frank Langella, you know, got, got a lot of the press, which is understandable. He's playing, you know, a very public figure, but Michael Sheen also does a a marvelous job of playing, uh, David Frost. And then there are all these supporting parts. Uh, one of them, uh, a character named Jack Brennan, who is Nixon's post presidency chief of staff. And he's played by Kevin Bacon. Hmm. And Kevin Bacon is like, is just this unsung actor. And he often does his best work when he's in one of these supporting roles. Mm-hmm. Like he was my favorite part of mystic river. There's a lot of showy performances there, yeah. but it's, it's his actual like quiet resolve that I come away remembering. And it's very much the same with this film. Um, you should see, did you ever see in the cut? I forget. The I Camping movie. The he's, I think he's actually uncredited in that movie. Really? Meg Ryan's ex-boyfriend. Mm. Um, and he's, he's terrific. There's just a, he, he's just, I mean, the, the cast is great all around. Oliver Platt's in it, uh, Sam Rockwell, um, Rebecca Hall. And, uh, it's a really good ensemble and a very, there's a, they do some things that I don't think they needed where they will cut to these actors, you know, in not old age makeup, but in older makeup and they shoot it a little bit washed out. And so it's like, okay, now they're, it's like they're being, interviewed years later about this thing. And I don't think it's necessary really, uh, at all. Mm -hmm. Um, but apparently that's something from the play that I honestly think they just didn't, they could have done without. But aside from that, it's just a very entertaining movie and I'm very happy that I rewatched it. And, uh, I'm even more excited for this project that I'm doing in school. All right. Um, 
This one I'm, uh, I know you've seen. Okay. Uh, I saw The Greatest Showman. Yes, you did. Uh, and uh, Highway, you know, oh, I guess I tweeted about it. You did. Um, Very enthusiastically. Yeah, it's so much fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, it, like, I kept l- laughing at the gall of the movie. Just to take the story of a cynical, exploitative person yeah. <laughs> like P.T. Barnum and make it about humanity and the triumph of the human spirit and all that stuff is such hucksterism yeah. that it's almost meta. Yeah. Right. It's like, it's almost like this is the movie. This is the kind of movie that PT Barnum would have wanted made about himself. This like, yeah. uh, this pack of lies. Yeah. And uh, he just laughs while he counts his money. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the film it, is doing shockingly well. Like a lot of people, it's not shocking to me. Well, but that's the thing is like, it's never, it's one of those movies. It was never number one at the box office. Oh, right. It was always like three. But while other movies have fallen away, it just stays there and it's done very well internationally. I'm taking a film marketing class and they've said that like greatest showman is a really fascinating study in releasing your film at the right time. Uh, but, uh, anyway, sorry. Go yeah. On. I mean, I saw it on a, a, a Monday night after it's been out for almost a month now and the theater wasn't full, but it was, you know, definitely a healthy crowd and also yeah. a very lively crowd. The crowd yeah. loved the movie. Um, uh, and, uh, yeah, I mean, you've got a bunch of people who were made to be in this type of movie, mm-hmm. you, you know, um, you've got some, you know, not, nothing in the movie. like, like musicals sometimes I think should be nothing in the movie looks real. Like, and I don't buy that this is like, what is it supposed to be like late 19th century? Like Manhattan? I think so. Yeah. I don't buy that. It just Not looks like all. a set, yeah. <laughs> you know, it looks like a Disneyland neighborhood or whatever. Um, <laughs> uh, and, and everything feels like that, you know, there's the, uh, my absolute favorite number in terms of the song is very good, but also the, the whole choreography is amazing is the number where Hugh Jackman convinces Zac Efron to come join. That's him. a good one. And, but that bar is like, it, whatever the opposite of lived in is that like, it looks like yeah. a set and I don't care. Like that, that's the guys kind of you're music. scaring people away from my just built bar. <laughs> yeah. With the weirdly high ceiling yeah. <laughs> and a lot of room where there could be tables and aren't, um, uh, and I do actually love the unsung hero in that scene is the bartender who has no lines, but it's yeah. weird, like a subtly, uh, he's subtly like a part of the choreography. Mm-hmm. You know, there's the whole part where Zach Efron's dancing across the bar and like he's, as he's stepping, the bartender has to move like the bottle and the shot glass and the shot glass and the bottle. And like yeah. he keeps having to move stuff down the bar as Zach Efron's dancing. Um, yeah, it's a, it, the movie's a complete like, uh, dream in the sense that uh, it it feels wispy and unreal, and that's how it's supposed to feel. Uh, and the songs uh, I think are are very catchy and um, uh, and very very fun, and I will be listening to them a lot more. And uh, I, I like Zendaya. I don't think I know her from anything. Uh, I mean, um, she's she's Mary Jane now. I think and, I know uh, that. Yeah, I, I, I'm pretty sure I knew that, but I didn't. Um, I haven't seen that movie. Uh, I, I like her a lot. I like the the woman um, who played the bearded lady. Yeah. Um, 
Although my, uh, my wife, Natalie, pointed out, like, it, this is one of those movies where there's a group of people, but there's, like, one or two characters who do all the talking for that group of people. Yes. <laughs> like, at some point, they all just elected the bearded lady and maybe Tom Thumb as their, like, yeah. spokesman. <laughs> but I, but I, my, uh, my justification there is this is, it's the kind of group of people where most of them probably weren't cast for their acting abilities. Right. They're cast because they fit the physical type or because they can sing and dance or those like maybe acting is just not their their thing probably yes um anyway um and that number this is me like the one that's nominated for an oscar like yeah is really affecting like Mm -hmm. you know here's the thing i think i might have said this uh when i was talking about it uh in a movie journal uh, a couple weeks ago um i am as boring and normal as a person can be i am Let's let's just list them all: white, straight, uh-huh. male. Yeah. Uh, in the key demo of my thirties, you know. Yeah. Um, my last name is Smith. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, you don't get more boring than that. Now, of course, I'm not taking my own personality into account, but even that is not that exciting. <laughs> um, but this is a film that it gets. I feel like it can touch you in a way where it gets you thinking about your own little peculiarities, even in the midst of, of being like a remarkably boring, bland person like mm-hmm. myself. And it's like, yeah, but there are these little things that set me apart and they might be things that for a while I was a little bit bummed about and a little bit, uh, maybe not ashamed of that might be a bit much, but, um, like it's a, it's, I feel like that's how, you know, when something is inspiring is that when it seems very specifically to deal with this group over here that you do not fit into, mm-hmm. But you you kind of want to be a part of it, and then you realize you are because you're a person, and everybody yeah. can feel this way. Yeah, that's what did Roger Ebert say about movies generating empathy. Absolutely. Um, last thing I'll say, uh, I mean, Zac Efron, he's not hurting, obviously. He's a big star. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I was watching this movie and thinking, like, what if Zac Efron had been around where he could be in movies with, like, Gene Kelly or Frank Sinatra? Or, like, yeah. he's... He would be, uh, he's, I think he's a phenomenally talented person. Is it just me or is his voice and cadence? I don't mean this in a negative way, Uh but as he's gotten older, his voice and cadence, all I hear is Jeremy Sisto. (laughs) Now, well, see, now now I'll have to be thinking about that. Yeah, it's very strange. I never would have thought of that on my own, but yeah. But yes, he is extremely, and that, that scene with, uh, him and, uh, Zendaya where like they're flying around on those ropes. That's I love another that. great one. Yeah. 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 There's all sorts of cool, yeah. Visual stuff that, uh, Michael Gracie is the director's name. Mm-hmm. This is his first feature. He's a, like a yeah. commercial director, I guess is what he's known for. Um, and he does all sorts of, all sorts of cool stuff. He finds all sorts of ways to, to use the, the circus set or the fact that the performance are the performers are, you know, quote unquote oddities or whatever, you know, yeah. so you've got like the Siamese twin doing a backflip together. That's very cool. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, what's next for you? Okay. Next for me is a new movie though, not a 2017. Um, I have been a fan of the maze runner films for a while. And so I, on a night that I had a lot of schoolwork to do, I instead opted to see the 142 minute maze runner, the death cure. Um, directed by Wes Ball. As and, all of these, but I, I only just realized yeah. that he was the director for all of them. And he hasn't um, really done anything else. Yeah. Uh, this is what he has done. But you know what? 
I'm reluctant to say they're great, but they do they feel right. Like they're just, you know, uh, oh. Alan Sherstall, the, the, uh, head critic for the village voice right now, who is also has been a maze runner apologist was let down by this final chapter. It is the one I'll say this. It's the one that is most conventional. Um, it's, it's the finale. And so it needs to deal with very big things. And in doing so, it doesn't feel that unique from hunger games or any of these other types of films. Um, so I will definitely say that I wasn't necessarily let down. It's more just like, okay, yeah, this is about what one would expect, but that's not something I said about the first two, but there are nice little moments, little character beats. Like there's a character who has been, is being held by the, the villainous, uh, organization and he's continually being subjected to like these hallucinations so that it can, it can uh, create like chemicals in his body and they can draw those out of him. And we see some of his hallucinations and they are handled so well. And then he is rescued. And one of the people that rescues him is somebody who ostensibly died in the first film. And we didn't see it all in the second film. And there's, and as they're running along, it lingers on this character's face just long enough. Right after he's like, "Wait, what are you? What are you doing here?" It lingers just long enough. It do, it doesn't. It's not necessarily a payoff. It doesn't pay this off or anything like that. It's just long enough to be like, he clearly th- is wondering if this is real. Mm-hmm. He is seeing someone that he believes is dead, and why on earth would this per- person be here? And it's just, it's a little performance moments and the fact that the director thought it was important to capture those. Um, and so there's, there's a lot of stuff about it that I like. Walton Goggins plays a, a character who is, um, uh, cause there's this terrible, uh, uh, plague that's been going around and he's a character who seems to have gotten the worst of it, but has ne- but never completely turned. It's like a zombie plague. Okay. Um, I like the idea that the plague has been, this plague's really been going around. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone in my office is out with the plague this week. <laughs> exactly. Oh, I, I just out then. Okay. Got it. Um, and, uh, but I enjoy his, his performance. I will say this one felt, and this is not praise at all. It felt like a really good, Resident Evil movie. Oh, okay. Which is to say a not great Maze Runner movie. Um, but uh, but I, st- the- I, I remember liking the first Resident Evil. And I, I, saw, I saw the second one and I hated it. And I don't think I ever... There's like six of them now. Yeah, I don't, I don't think... I think I stopped after two. Because um, the second one is so preposterous. The, uh, the guys over at Red Letter Media, who I, I enjoy quite a bit, uh, when the fifth one came out, they decided they were going to watch the first four all in one day and then go see the fifth one. And by the time, and they just filmed themselves watching this. And by the time the fourth one comes around, they're so punchy that they're uh-huh. just, bur- they're just laughing hysterically at, the, but not on purpose. They've also been getting really drunk. Um, <laughs> but, uh, at just this ridiculous over the top finale, um, where like <laughs> Mia Jovovich, like, uh, she like breaks like a bunch of glass and then kicks a shard of glass into somebody. Oh, cool. <laughs> uh, anyway, but this, this reminded me <laughs> this of sounds that. like a, maybe future BP commentary, uh, <sighs> all the resident evils. <laughs> wow. Yeah. All right. Maybe. Um, 
but yeah, it's it it's definitely the the worst of the three. But I did still enjoy it, and on certain emotional levels, from a character standpoint, I think it pays things off pretty well. Um, and there's a couple of uh, nice moral dilemmas that I liked quite a bit um, that you don't usually expect from this kind of thing. So, um, so yeah, I'd say uh, mostly thumbs up. But I can understand why people would feel let down if they are fans of the series. All right. Um, I saw a very cool Irish movie called Song of Granite. Okay. Uh, and it's a somewhere between a documentary and a biopic, but also not really either of those things either. Um, uh, imagine a documentary that has dramatizations in it, mm-hmm. but somehow you're like watching the movie from the other side where more of more of the movie is dramatization than it is the documentary footage. Okay. But also not all the dramatization has anything particularly to do with the quote unquote, like story of the biography of this man. Okay. If that makes sense. So you've got three, the, 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 the subject is, a uh, um, he died in the 1980s. He was a, an Irish folk singer, uh, who sang like in Gaelic, um, named Joe Heaney. um, and the movie is told in three sort of uh, sections where you've got three different actors. You've got um, one in like the late 1920s where there's a kid playing him. And then you jump ahead to the 1960s when he's like in his 40s and he first uh, starts to get some success and he moves to America and ends up, you know, he's sort of um, um, plays a Newport Folk Festival and he's still he's like working as a doorman in New York City but also making these folk records and Hmm. like kind of has this side career uh, in the like Lewin Davis type of like folk world but like all of that happens like tangential to the movie if that makes sense Um, there's a lot of just singing just singing folk songs um not even just him you see there's a whole part before he goes to america where he's just at a pub there's a very long section of the movie that like has no story to it at all it just like is an irish pub and people take turns singing these incredibly sad gaelic folk songs and it's so beautiful um uh but like the whole thing about him moving to New York to play the new or moving to America to uh, go, going to America to play the Newport folk festival and then deciding to stay in New York. And like that happened, like you hear him mention that off screen to someone like, mm-hmm. and then you're just in New York and, uh, it, it really, I think has, it's, if you're, yeah, if you're, if you're looking to learn about the life of Joe Heaney, you're probably better off reading the Wikipedia page. I think this is more a movie about what these songs say about Ireland and how in a way the songs contain Ireland so that even when he leaves in his 1940s and never goes back to Ireland and dies, uh, eventually, I learned from Wikipedia he died in Washington State. We don't. The movie never even tells you where he is. The third part is him in old age, although not not that old. He was only he died when he was in his uh, mid sixties, I think. Yeah. Um, the movie never even tells you where these scenes take place. It's just him talking to an American woman who um, I'm guessing from having read his Wikipedia page is supposed to be a student, maybe because he was teaching mm-hmm. um, at the uh, University of Washington. Is that that's in Seattle? Yeah. Um, uh, but even, so even though he never makes it back, he also in a way never really leaves Ireland. If you know what I mean, because mm-hmm. he has these songs 
with him. Um, it's a really beautiful abstract uh, biopic type of How movie. did you see it? Was it a, uh, a screening or? Uh, no, I, I got a, a, a screen. Like there's, um, it's from Oscilloscope. Um, and they send award screeners if you ask, which I usually do. Oh, all right. Because um, uh, they usually put out some some cool shit. Uh, and, and so I've been trying to catch up on uh, cool screeners that I have. Uh, like it, it Comes at Night was a screener and so was Lucky. Um, uh, and I, um, yeah, I meant to bring those for you. Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> I forgot. <laughs> um, uh, anyway, um, uh, but yeah, that's how I, that's how I saw uh, The Song of Granite. Okay. So that's really good. So next up for me is a, a film that I saw for class, um, the class that I'm TAing for. Um, and it is uh, a rewatch. It is Spike Lee's Inside Man. Have you seen Inside Man? I've never Man? seen Inside Man. I'm a big Spike Lee fan. I don't know how I missed that one. It is 80% solid. Like, really good. It is. It is, it is quite possibly... In fact, I'm going to say pretty definitive, definitively his most accessible film. No, like no question about it. Okay. It's, a, it's about a bank heist, and the guy planning it has just planned everything out, and it's just very meticulous. And and you just wonder, like, oh my gosh, how's he going to pull this off? And then you realize, like, oh, he's just going to pull it off by sheer force of will, which actually does kind of lower the stakes a little bit. But um, and just the. Uh, cops trying to figure out what's going on because there's also a hostage situation and then there's ulterior motives it's fairly complex um very well shot really well cut together it's just this extremely enjoyable uh crackerjack kind of uh story and then the bank heist is over and the movie continues, which is not necessarily a bad thing. And mm-hmm. I'm a big, you know, I'm a big fan of No Country for Old Men. Mm-hmm. And that's something where, you know, once the story is quote unquote over, the movie continues and d- dives almost purely into theme. This is not that. The, the story does continue with like all these revelations, all of which are just said. Um, and what's more is it's like, you know the action's over, right? And while it is, I'm mildly curious to know about like, well, what was ever, what was really going on behind the action? You know, that's that's interesting, but you really shouldn't be spending this much time on it, mm-hmm. even if even if it does mean we get scenes between Jodie Foster and Christopher Plummer. You know, cool and. Shiatola Ejiofor and uh, Denzel Washington and Clive Owen thrown in there as well, like. It has a good cast. Willem Dafoe's in there as well. Um, good cast all around, but uh, but yeah, it just it really for me. And I remember thinking this when I first saw it. Like, what is it? it's a t- 2006 movie. Yeah, so I saw it like on video mm-hmm. in 2006, and I thought this exact same thing that like the air just goes out of it, and it becomes a lot less interesting. Also, as strange as it sounds, I'm not a big fan of Denzel Washington's performance in that. Oh, that's a, that's rare. Right? I know. Yeah. Because, and he's doing his, he, he's being like kind of this charming guy, but there are moments when like his partner will make a joke, his, his partner, uh, Shiotel Ejiofor, um, will make a joke. And, and the way in which Denzel Washington laughs does not seem natural. It seems actually very 
self-conscious and it seems very forced. Hmm. Um, and there are a few of those. And I just, I wonder if it's, there are moments when it feels like he's phoning it in, or at least there are certainly moments when he feels way more engaged and other moments when he doesn't. Uh, and I'm wondering if this like came at a time in his career when he was just, he was just kind of doing these, these thrillers. And even though it's Spike Lee and he did really great work with Spike Lee in the past, I just wonder if he was getting bored of this type of thing. Um, and it's really only the scenes where like when he's interacting with Clive Owen as the, the bank robber in those scenes, that's when he's really engaged and really present. The rest of it, it does seem to me like he just doesn't care that much. Um, but, uh, or maybe he didn't believe in the script. I'm not sure. Um, and it might just be me, but I'm a fan of Denzel Washington. Like he can be incredibly naturalistic, very charming. Uh, and I just didn't really see it in, in this film. So, uh, but it's a really well put together film. It's very entertaining. And then it just decides it wants to explain everything. And that is unfortunate. Um, doesn't it feel like it's about time for Denzel Washington to make another like, uh, trashy, but cool, like thriller movie, like unstoppable. Uh, I never saw Unstoppable, but like I'm thinking about like I, I never saw The Equalizer either. But that was 2014. Before that, there was Two Guns and uh, Safe House, both of which I really liked. That's right. I wanted um, to see both of those. Yeah, I, I should see The Equalizer. I did see The Magnificent Seven, which is a bigger budget thing, yeah. but is pretty trashy. And I liked The Magnificent Seven remake too. But even that's almost two years old. It'll be two years old this summer. Yeah, he's um, probably due. Yeah, I'll, yeah. I mean, I'm you know he's great in fences and he's doing his best in Roman J Israel. It's a terrible movie. Hey, um, <laughs> got me my points. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in our fantasy Oscar, um, thing. Um, Oh, I say that and I'm looking at IMDb. Apparently what's coming up. He's making the equalizer too. Oh, well, so maybe it's go. about time for me to see the equalizer. Yeah. Um, that's rare. He doesn't, uh, he doesn't do a lot of sequels. Yeah, I guess that's true. Um, I feel like book of Eli was maybe supposed to be a, a franchise, but I don't think it did that well. I guess I could see that. He, I never saw his it, character but... is the type that could kind of go back on the road and it becomes a, a Mad Max type of thing. Right. Um, but yeah. Uh, did you ever see, uh, I think we talked about it with Scott. Um, did you ever see deja vu? Uh, no, I never it's did. Gr- it's great. Yeah. It's I, so good. Um, yeah, I, I need to see unstoppable and, Deja vu because uh, I love Man on Fire. Yes, um, and there was uh, I can't remember the call. I know we talk about the AV Club all the time, but I love reading the AV Club and they have a feature where they talk about uh, like actor director teams that have worked together more than yeah. once. And there was a Tony Scott Denzel Washington essay that I read uh, that made me really really want to want to watch uh, Deja Vu and Unstoppable. And then I don't remember who directed uh, Taking of Pelham One Two Three. Um, I don't know. But, Maybe that's uh, him too. I don't know. But that's that's a fine movie. That, that's that's a fine movie. I found it entertaining. Um, and Denzel Washington is very good in that. Like again, it is rare for me to think. Yeah, that that's also Tony Scott. It is it. Okay, yeah. I, I guess that feels like it. Um, but uh, it's rare for me to say that he turns in like a bad performance or just mm-hmm. or at least just like a a perfunctory performance. But that's how it feels in Inside Man. Um. Okay, moving on. Uh, now, but that, uh, earlier I, I watched two Lucky movies back to back. Now I've got two Song movies back to back. From Song of Granite to Terrence Malick's Song to Song. Okay. Um, 
and I really need to see Knight of Cups now because I skipped it. People said it wasn't that great, but people are saying song to song isn't that great, and they're yeah. uh, they're wrong. It's really it's they're, really cool. They're wrong to wrong. <laughs> they are. They're wrong to wrong. Um, and it does feel like he's. Uh, I think it's. I mean, again, not having seen Knight of Cups, I saw To the Wonder and I saw the the IMAX one, the Voyage Voyage of Time, mm-hmm. Journey of Time, Voyage. Mm, of Time. I don't remember. Now. I can't remember what it's called. Um, and I do think Song to Song is his best since The Tree of Life because I'm a big Tree of Life fan. Um, and, and I think uh, he's got a bunch of actors who were really on his wavelength. I think that was maybe the maybe the issue with to the wonder is I felt like Ben Affleck as a performer was a little bit inside his head. Like I think Ben Affleck can be a good actor, but I don't know that he's a great improvisational actor and that's what this calls for. And if he, if that story was done in a more straightforward way, I think his performance would have been great. Like Mm -hmm. I think he was doing good stuff, but there are moments when I don't necessarily, it didn't take me out of it, but it definitely, as opposed to somebody like to go back to tree of life, somebody like Brad Pitt or Jessica Chastain, like they really seem like tuned into what yeah. Malik was and, doing. And that's what happens here. You've got your main three cast are Rooney Mara, uh, Ryan Gosling and Michael Fassbender who are all, um, terrifically, I think, uh, impulsive physical actors. Yeah. Uh, you've also got Natalie Portman and Holly Hunter, uh, showing up, um, and a bunch of other like, uh, it takes place within the Austin music scene, uh, and apparently he filmed a lot of stuff at the Austin City Limits Music Festival. So you've got like Iggy Pop shows up, Patti Smith in it a bunch, actually. Um, the the Chili Peppers, unfortunately, uh, are in it. Um, I, I, I was talking about the Chili Peppers with my with my wife because she was like. You know, she for years not you know she now she's a child social worker, but she for years worked with the homeless population, and she was like, I really wish these guys who are from L.A., the city I'm from, who truly care about the homeless population, who give a lot of money and have like legit backstories, I wish their music was good. <laughs> like I want to like them so much. I don't think but, I dislike them, but they're not exactly appointment viewing for me. You know what I mean? Like they're, no, they're like they're change the radio station for me. They're okay. maybe my least favorite band of all time, actually. Um, that can't be true. They might be. Hmm. I talk a lot of shit about the doors, but honestly, that's really just about Jim Morrison. <laughs> if like, I would listen to the doors instrumental. Like there are long door songs where Jim Morrison isn't singing for a while. And I'm like, Oh yeah, this is, these guys are good. <laughs> um, yeah, Chili Peppers might be my least favorite band. Uh, and I'm reminded of the, uh, I think it's a Nick Cave quote. Uh, I can't remember exactly what it is, but it's something like, I feel like I'm forever standing next to a stereo going, what the fuck is this shit? And the answer is always the Red Hot Chili Peppers. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, funny. Anyway, um, but back to back to song to song. Um, uh, yeah, I, I mean, he's still working in this style that I think... Um, I think, you know, started in tree of life, but really, uh, he kept following it further down, down the path, um, with, uh, you know, his, the sort of lenses keep getting wider and wider and, um, the camera is always, uh, always moving. And, um, the movies are more and more improvisational in terms of, I think in terms of everything, but also, you know, in terms of the dialogue, I don't think there's much, uh, prepared, at the time um and it does really seem like they're just picking up shots uh wherever wherever they want um 
so yeah, it's, it's, it's really great. Um, I do a, a couple of, a couple of things. One, I, I, you know, I think I, to some extent I do kind of understand where people who aren't into, um, post tree of life Malik are coming from mm-hmm. because uh, I think there's a thing where, um, the, the way that he's depicting the thing isn't, doesn't necessarily have anything to do with what he's depicting. Like right. he's picking a style and everything is shot like that. And it doesn't matter what it is really. And I think there can be some disconnect because of that. Um, which I understand. And I think song to song, which is like, it's a long, it's like two hours and 10 minutes long. Um, it did take me a while, I think to get into its rhythm, but I really think he's an actor or he's an actor. He's a director who, uh, this is almost, I think counterintuitive maybe to say, but in in other ways, not at all. But the less that he becomes interested in story and dialogue, the more important the performances of the actors are, have become to his movie because they need to be like, like I said, they need to be physically there and mentally there. And I think, you know, um, I mean, Ryan Gosling, you know, probably doesn't seem like something I'd want to hang out with. He seems like he could get obnoxious pretty quick, but he's perfect for this kind of movie because I think he's kind of, uh, he has no, I don't think there's any embarrassment (laughs) to him. You know, he he will be in, he will be absolutely in the moment. Um, and that wasn't always the case. There was a time when I thought that uh, Ryan Gosling was way too much, too much of a like the kind of actor who's thinking too much about what his face is doing. You know, early <laughs> sure. on in his career, sure. I think. And like, and I'm, I'm talking about early, like, like the Murder by Murder Numbers, by numbers yeah. and like um, the Believer, uh, the Believer, and uh, the United States of Leland. Right. Uh, that that era, um, I think he's become much more confident. I guess that will happen when everyone keeps telling you you're great um but i think like just half getting, nelson just was kind of older, like a, i think yeah. makes it makes a difference I, half nelson is probably a bit of a transitional moment yeah. for him because i think he is notably unselfconscious in that film. yeah and rooney mara obviously i've always been a, a fan of uh michael michael fassman is great even though uh i'm not sure he's played a character that i've actually liked since inglorious bastards but that's not his fault <laughs> he keeps just playing guys who are generally kind of uh, conceited or slimy or untrustworthy, right? I do, I do like his Magneto. I think he does good good work as Magneto. Right, but he's, I mean, Magneto, you can't he's, like Magneto too much. Not too much, no. He um, does murder a lot of people. Yeah, he murders people. Yeah. Uh, but he, yeah, he was the, I mean, the only thing that I liked about X-Men First Class was the Magneto stuff. Sure. So, yeah. Um, anyway, uh, and but the, okay, a couple of other things. I, I think... Uh, and this actually ends up making the movie more interesting in a way, but I don't think Terrence Malick has a feel for the, like this rock and roll subculture. And sure. I, in fact, I don't even think he entirely trusts it. If that makes sense. I, I could see that. Like, I just don't, I just don't think like, uh, I don't think he cares about this music very much, even though can't you just it, see him And this? I don't mean to bash Terrence Malick, but can't you just see him being like, Oh, it's so angry. <laughs> I could yeah. see him thinking that. Well, there's even, there's a part that I think is kind of, um, indicative of his, his not getting the scene, but also makes for a beautiful image early on. There's a slow motion shot of a mosh pit at what it clearly is like a hardcore, like punk, Mm-hmm. Uh, outdoor show clearly you can see the singer screaming into the mic that's clearly what it is but that's not the music you're hearing you're hearing yeah. like edm hmm. 
while these like you know hardcore kids are are moshing yeah. and it's beautiful uh but i don't know um that he uh cares about the hardcore or the edm it just seems uh, right edm maybe seems more his thing um maybe uh and then finally you know i think uh what i don't know politically morally whatever i think terrence mellick can be quite conservative in a lot of ways and i think this is a movie that is about uh people you know moving from one relationship to the next and often one sexual partner to the next and i think he moralizes a bit about sex and certain types of sex like i think he he views in the movie he views things like rough sex or multi-partner sex as sort of symptoms of spiritual bankruptcy. Yeah. Uh, and that, you know, as a guy who considers myself quote unquote sex positive, uh, it kind of rubbed me the wrong way. But anyway, for a movie that I have a handful of complaints about, I still think it's really, really great. And he, he is also getting older. That's the other thing, you mm-hmm. know? So I could see, uh, I could see that playing a role as well. Um, okay. All right, moving on. Oh yeah. So, um, I, I, I should have known better. I decided since it was featured on, uh, movie, our regular episode sponsor. Mm-hmm. Um, and I hadn't seen it in a while. I threw on room two thirty seven. Oh yeah. Uh, because I had forgotten how it started. Uh, and it's like, Oh yeah, it just jumps. It jumps right in. And then a time warp happened, and I was done with the movie. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's that it kind just, of movie, definitely. You, you cannot tear yourself away from it. And I know that, like, we know Rodney, and so it's, uh, we're not just saying that because we know him, but like, right. he's, a, he's a, a, a mesmerizing filmmaker. Like, he just yeah. gets, in his own way, he's a little Terrence Malick. Like, just this, this mesmerizing, he just gets into this very specific type of flow, pulls you in. It's a little bit hypnotic. And even though I don't think I agree with a single thing that is said in room 237, yeah. um, I love the idea of it. I love the execution of it. And it's just also, it's such a celebration of film on yeah. art in general, yes. but film specifically. Well, I think uh, it's nice that the movie doesn't require that you believe any of it. That's not the point. Yes. Um, but it's also not dismissing any of it. It I think that's like Rodney might be the least judgmental person. (laughs) That's what I I was going to say. Like, I didn't want to keep like, uh, uh, you know, putting, uh, this guy we know who's a friend of the podcast on, on a pedestal, but he is like, he's, I feel like Rodney is the type of artist and just human being that I want to see become, successful which he is yeah. becoming uh, successful because he is yeah like you said he's just in such a nice guy yeah and uh and the film just seems very calmly invigorated by what it is becoming um and i absolutely i do adore that movie and so listeners if you haven't seen room 237 go to com slash Battleship and get your free month of movie and check out room 237. All right. So I, um, saw a movie that I'm, I was very excited to see, uh, comes out in a couple weeks. I was part of the reason I was excited to see it is cause I don't know if you remember Tyler or you, the listener, I was supposed to have, my wife and I were supposed to have gone to, uh, Berlin and Prague last October. Indeed, yes. And, um, our plans blew up on our face literally the night before we were supposed to leave. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Uh, update that we did finally get our airfare refunded. Nice. Uh, four months later. All right. Uh, it finally happened. So we are planning another trip to Berlin this October. All right. <laughs> uh, we'll see how it works. Anyway, but this movie uh, that I saw just last night um, had already it opened back in October in in uh in europe Mm -hmm. um and so we had specifically planned to see it so it was finally it was like seeing it last night was like finally gotcha yeah i got a chance to see this movie uh it's sally potter's new movie the party um oh yeah all right which is uh uh, tyler you will love this movie it looked really intense to me it looked a little bit neil abutish to me oh see i mean i think the the um uh uh, the 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 comparison that I have seen made that I thought of myself is to Carnage. Um, yeah, but it's I could see that uh, it has a bigger cast. It's shorter. It's very short. It's only seventy one minutes long. Bam. Um, and I do think it's it's not uh, as like shrill as Carnage. It's I think much more. Even though the people are mostly pretty awful, um, uh, I think it has a better a better sense of character, and I think the dialogue is smarter um the premise is that uh kristen scott thomas let me run down the cast for you by the way uh here um so you've got kristen scott thomas you've got timothy spall you've got uh patricia clarkson you've got uh bruno gans um who played hitler in downfall Mm -hmm. uh emily mortimer um Killian Murphy. Killian Murphy, and then uh, what is her Cherry Jones? I oh, yeah, always think great. of her as the sheriff from Signs, even though she's been in a million things. Yeah. Cherry Jones. So that's your cast right there. Kristen Scott Thomas was a woman who has just been, I guess, elected Minister of Health in the UK, um, and so they're having a party or closest uh, friends. Um, but then very shortly, in I'm not sure how much to give away. Um, uh, very shortly into the party, Timothy Spall, who plays her husband, uh, makes an announcement and then another announcement um, that completely set things um, astray. And people, you know, people are vomiting fire start. There's a there's a, there's a pistol at one point. Uh, there's the, the movie goes uh, nuts, but I think still um, keeps keeps on track. It, it, and uh, I think it really um, is even though most of what I've just described of the plot, other than the health minister thing, isn't, uh, overtly political. I do think it's a political satire because I think it's, um, about, uh, I, all, all these people are, um, liberals. Um, and I think it's about testing sort of, um, dedication to an ideal over dedication to the person who is your partner in life Mm. or, um, dedication to an ideal when you act, when, you know, when it's hard, when you, when, 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 when things of your situation has changed and you actually have to come up, uh, uh, against it. And I think, um, uh, the movie is, uh, I I would, this could come off as very nineties and cheap what I'm about to say. Um, but I think the movie handles it very well. Patricia Clarkson, who is the most dedicated cynic ends up being the most, uh, emotionally and intellectually honest character (laughs) in in the movie and is the most, um, 
reliable, loyal, and trustworthy character <laughs> in the entire movie, um, despite being uh, a nonstop cynic. Um, when I saw the trailer for it, I actually it did seem like something from the '90s. Maybe that's why I jumped yeah. to like Neil Abute. It just because yeah. he's a filmmaker, even though he's he still makes movies. Like mm-hmm. I think of him very much as a '90s guy. Um, so yeah, it's really good. Last thing I'll say, this is just something I noticed. Um, I'm not sure if you would have, uh, uh, if this would surprise you. So the opening, uh, titles, the cast is listed in alphabetical order. It literally says cast in alphabetical order. Mm -hmm. Kristen Scott Thomas comes before Timothy Spall. No, no. But I'm guessing, so her last name is Scott Thomas. I don't see any hyphen. That's what I thought. No, thank you. But maybe, but I mean, if that's the way she wanted to be billed, apparently that's her last. I, I, I always thought of her last name as being Thomas. You know what? Uh, but apparently her last name is Scott Thomas. I've completely soured on her now. <laughs> uh, I've always been a big Kristen Scott Thomas fan. Um, yeah. And she's she's uh, I remember I really like her in, in Darkest Hour. It's a it's a mm-hmm. bummer that she didn't get more uh, press for that. Yeah. Um, right. OK. So speaking of. Big British casts that include, among others, Timothy Spall. Um, I rewatched a film from 2002, Douglas McGrath's Nicholas Nickleby. Oh. You want to cast, listen to this, David. Shut up and listen to this. Charlie Hunnam, Tom Courtenay, Christopher Plummer, Anne Hathaway, Jim Broadbent, Jamie Bell. Uh, let's see. I got to see. Anne something. Hathaway was in that. Uh, Kevin McKidd, Edward Fox, yeah. uh, Nathan Lane, Alan Cumming, uh, Eileen Walsh. Uh, let's see. And I, uh, there's Timothy Spall and, oh, David Bradley, um, from, uh, he's, uh, eyebrows. No, he's I'm thinking Her- of David Hemmings. Uh, yes. That, he is, has the uh, that is eyebrows. Uh, he's no, David, David Bradley Bradley's. is from, uh, Harry Potter. He's Filch. And oh, he's also oh, in yes. Game of Thrones. Yes. Um, or if, uh, one of my favorite things, um, you know, that wizard people, dear readers thing that what's his name oh, Brad yeah, yeah, yeah. came up with. Uh, I do love that. He refers to Filch. That character's name is Dazzler. <laughs> That's what he calls him. <laughs> um, so, uh, anyway, you saw Nicholas Nickleby, correct? Yeah. I mean, once on DVD in 2002 or three. Yes. Um, I love it. I love it so much. I love this. I love this version of it. I think it is just, it's, it's so sincere. Like it's just very having only read like one or two Dickens books, but having seen countless adaptations of his work, there is, there is a definite, like I know what people mean when they say Dickensian, there's a certain heightened quality where characters tend to, it's not expressionistic, but the characters are like mm-hmm. they just whatever is inside. They might not declare it all the time, but it's there a lot, you know. Um, and that is the case with these characters. And Nicholas, played by um, Charlie Hunnam, is just a genuinely decent person, openly emotional. Uh, you know cries when he's feeling sad and when he misses someone. Uh, and it's just, it's hard not to like that character and hard not to just get involved with just these very, not over the top, but these heightened characters with a capital C, like these are not people that you would meet in life. Um, and the acting is marvelous. Uh, 
I guess, yeah, there, I guess Christopher Plummer is in two of these movies and he plays the villain, uh, Ralph Nickleby, uh, in this. And there's a, there's a lot going on in his performance. Uh, he is just a real Mr. Burns son of a bitch, but, uh, but there's also a, some self-loathing going on there. It is a, it's, it's really just a marvelous film and one that I feel like was just sort of overlooked at the time. Uh, it was up for one golden globe for picture, you know, for comedy or whatever, mm-hmm. but I feel like it should have been up for, for some Oscars and that sort of thing, because it's uh, again, wonderful cast, really great production value. And you just get such a sense of, the world and uh and yeah listeners if you haven't seen it which you probably haven't i highly Mm -hmm. recommend it i do know that um i believe it's available on uh, amazon prime so you can watch it that way and then i also know that uh twilight time uh has put it out on blu-ray and so i'm sure it's i'm sure it's a beautiful transfer uh finally for me and was that the final one for you that is for me okay so fine and then we'll talk about amazing race right sure yes uh finally for me uh last night i finally caught up with agnes varda's faces places okay um thumbs down uh no definitely definitely thumb thumbs up uh and i feel like i've come um there's a certain type of uh, the french new wave (laughs) has been (laughs) a constant in my life as a cinephile but my feelings about it haven't been constant okay do you know what i mean yes i do like i think i thought that i liked it very early on when all that i really knew was like breathless and shoot the piano players you know i was like oh they're like crime movies with jump cuts (laughs) you know um uh, it's, uh, they're, uh, crime movies with no, uh, permits, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, and then as it went on, I, I, as I got, as I learned more about it, I think I started to have some trouble with it. Not that I disliked it, but I think I, like I got frustrated by the movies and I think I've realized I've now come around where I've, where I've realized that, um, I think just less and less, uh, and maybe this is why I was in the perfect place to, like song to song so much Uh, less and less the older I get do I want to insist on or expect anything of movies do you know what I mean Mm -hmm. like I find myself being way freer to just let movies happen to me in a way and I think the French New Wave is uh, a, a type of thing that is perfectly suited to that kind of watching. And so that's why I've come around, you know, a couple years ago, I saw a band of outsiders at the, um, at the TCM classic film fest. It was so great. Uh, anyway, so Agnes Varda is one of the founders of the new wave. Um, and, um, I, I guess the new wave is over. So faces places can't possibly be a new wave movie, right. but it brings some of that with it in the sense that this is a documentary about her and this other artist is technically co-directed by Agnes Varda and, uh, an artist named J.R. And so he goes by, um, he's, I mean, I'd say he's a Banksy type of people know him and what he looks like, but he like his thing is he always dresses exactly the same and he only ever goes by JR. There's no, mm-hmm. nothing else. Um, and his thing is that he goes around and takes pictures of people and then prints those pictures in very large format and pastes them out, you know, on the walls of the buildings where these people live or work or that sort of thing. So she basically the two of them just go on a road trip through the countryside doing this mm-hmm. and meeting, uh, meeting rural French people, I guess. Um, and so 
you know, that's a pretty uh, heartwarming setup for a documentary, right? And sure. it is, and it is that the movie is also is very charming and very heartwarming. But I think where the sort of new waveness uh, comes into the movie is in the idea that the movie is about that, but it's also kind of about whatever else Agnes Varda would happen to be thinking about at the time. I could see that. Yeah. Um, and, I, uh, I, I remember I find, speaking of Agnes Varda, was it like two years ago? Cinelicious, um, is that what they're called? I think, uh, put out on Blu-ray, a documentary she made about, um, the model actress, Jane Birkin mm-hmm. called Jane B by Agnes V. That's right. Uh, and I've loved it. Uh, it ended up being one of my favorite. I think it was on my, uh, Oh, I just turned in my film discoveries list for the Rupert Pupper, Rupert Pupkin speaks blog, which is my favorite things that I get to do every year. And I think that year that I saw Jane B by Agnes V, uh, Jane B. Yeah. By Agnes v, uh, uh, that made the list. Um, and, uh, there's some of that going on, on here where, you know, they, uh, there's suddenly her memory, you know, I, I talked about how she's one of the few people left from the original French new wave. Well, Godard is still yeah. alive as well. And they knew each other and were kind of friends or friendly and worked together. And so all this stuff about Godard starts like, uh, coming into the movie and they like, uh, you know, they recreate the, um, uh, 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 band of outsiders, uh, run through the Louvre, right. Uh, you know, um, in the movie. And it's like, what is it? I'm not sure what this has to do with like taking pictures of farmers and dock workers, but it also just seems to, to fit and it, because it's all, I, I think that's the thing is I, initially thought going back to when I was like 18 or 19 or whatever, initially thought of the French new wave as being, um, showy or being like a very deliberate, uh, 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 rebuke of certain things. And it, mm-hmm. and it is that, but I think what I've come to, uh, really respect about the, that those films is that they're just honest. And so, you don't have to make an excuse for why this thing about this guy she used to be friends with is in the same movie as, um, as the documentary about the traveling artist Mm -hmm. because they're tied together in her mind and she's the filmmaker. She makes them tied together by not having any, uh, pretense i think it's funny i guess french new wave seems like a quote-unquote pretentious thing to like but is actually um has very little pretense to it when when done right Hmm. uh so faces places is great and made me think a lot about the french new wave which was probably supposed to do bp nominated faces places directed by bp lifetime achievement award winner agnes varda that's right that's right you know why don't you uh, keep an eye towards branding, okay? Okay. <laughs> um, uh, and then finally, um, I mean, I got an email thanking us. It was an email, maybe it was a tweet, uh, thanking us for not getting into spoilers on Amazing Race uh, discussions. But I think I'm going to get into spoilers this time. So, sure. Uh, we haven't seen last night's episode, right? Neither of us has. Um, I was watching movies all night, as you can as you can tell. Um, uh, so we'll be talking about the first three, I guess, episodes. But is it four? Because one was a two. I two guess, hour episode. Yeah, that sounds right. Um, anyway, uh, I think the, uh, you know, there's sometimes someone gets the non elimination leg and I'm, uh, and I'm like, phew, you know, yeah. they've got a chance. And sometimes it's like, 
this team just needs to go. Yeah, come on. Guys. And I and I kind of felt like the basketball players like they they were making too many mistakes um and they they kept falling behind and yeah. them getting saved <laughs> at the elimination it did exactly what i thought it did it just delayed the inevitable one more one more leg yes uh and it's you know and they're likable and and that's all well and good and they did for a while seem to have a shockingly good sense of direction um but yeah like it, and it's one of those things where like when you watch the show enough, you just know that like, okay, yeah, I know who's not going to win. Right. Um, every once in a while, someone surprises you like the, like the two, the, the gay couple that were like farmers or whatever from a, a few years ago. Right. Um, but aside from that, like, I think I could tell you right now who the top five is going to be. Yeah. Um, and, but what's, I mean, what's interesting about the basketball players, it's Cedric, and I can't remember the other guy's name. I don't recall his name either. But Cedric is an enormous, amazing race fan. And, like, so I, I think every time I, and maybe it puts my theories to the test, if I think, like, well, I'd know what to do. I'd make sure to always read the clue. I'd do right. this. Like, you, I guess you don't know until you're there and you're exhausted and you're running around. And, there's kind and I'm of sure the face. adrenaline is, yeah. is pumping yeah. and all that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because that is the same thought that Jen and I had is, is we're like, had he ever seen the show? Oh, it turns out he'd seen all of them. Yeah. <laughs> and I guess, you know, who knows? But, uh, and they did, you know, they did as well as they could do. Like when they, when he mentions that he's, you know, he's had three heart attacks. I'm like, well, how on earth were you let on this That's show? That's what Natalie and I were saying. I mean, I guess they must have to pass a physical. There's no way. I mean, he's doing some, yeah. like. When he's running up and down the the uh, I can't remember what town they were in but when they had to find the um, the the roaming gnome yeah and then uh, he decided to keep his backpack on for some reason uh, what else is he supposed to do with it give it to his partner who's not doing it oh okay <laughs> yeah I like, guess that's like true. clearly everybody else did yeah I guess that's true yeah dumb mistake yeah um, anyway but that brings me to speaking of the gnome my stealth favorite team. Okay. Is the twin brothers who are firefighters because they are a pun factory. No question <laughs> about it. I love it. And it, <laughs> the ones where they, they have a sort of, they had the gnome and he said, I never would have known. <laughs> and just, and there's a, a moment when they're like making shoes and the basketball players are in there. <laughs> okay. And one is like, one's like, says, says like, I can feel it in my soul or whatever yeah, yeah. it is. He says, yeah, my and soul, everyone, yeah. yeah. And everyone's, I'm, I'm putting my soul into it. Yeah. And the other was like, it's like, you better be careful. We're right on your heel. And like, yeah. Just, <laughs> yeah. Oh, Jen and I love it every time. And then yeah. what is it? Well, he also, and then there's the, uh, the, the, the roadblock where one of them had to do the, the other one had to be in stocks yeah. and he one is building like, a, a trebuchet or whatever. Yes. And then the other is in, it was stocks. a trebuchet. Yes. Some people called it a catapult, but it's a trebuchet. Yeah. I looked up the difference. Do you want to yeah. know the difference? Uh, I think okay. I knew the difference at one point. Uh, a catapult, you have to like, it's like a seesaw where you have to like weigh something down on one side, but well, maybe I'm wrong. No, a catapult, you have to pull back like a sling. Oh, okay. Because catapults work based on tension, Got whereas it. trebuchets use gravity. Got That's it. why they okay. do the whole flipping around thing. Yeah. Anyway. Um, yeah, and so they're putting the one guy in the stocks, and he's just like, "Hold on, I'm investing in some stock." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, I. It's it's that's the thing is like they're not going to make it to the end, and that's unfortunate because no, the yeah. day they're gone, the puns are going to go away, and I enjoy them so much. And here's here's the thing: this is something Jen and I say all the time: is that 
I always like when people are clearly enjoying the race. Yeah. And I think they are. Yeah. You don't make those kind of puns if you're angry. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And you know who else is, even though, uh, see, this is the great thing that I say, like, I know the amazing race is fun, but I get kind of lofty about it sometimes Okay, because it forces not only the, it, I've said this before that it takes Americans and forces them to spend time with different types of Americans and also with people from all over the country. And yeah. they, and it sort of breaks down assumptions and barriers. And I feel like it also does that for the viewer. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and so maybe my favorite team is also the one that, uh, in the past couple of episodes, the guy said something that really pissed me off is the big brother team because I, they, I've liked them quite, they a bit. are having fun. They yeah. truly care about each other, which is, uh, yes. uh, astounding. Like that's a healthy relationship, but also, Okay. You know that I consider myself a patriot. I love America. I love the our the American experiment and the mm-hmm. and and the our style of representative democracy and the land of opportunity. I actually I I get frustrated at the ways that people define it or have uh, tried to put it into little boxes or or whatever. But I really do believe in America. Yeah, but. When like that guy at the beginning of the Godfather. Uh, yeah. But when she says, let's move to San Tropez, and he says immediately, no, not unless they have the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, that really pissed me off. Because that's not patriotism, that's jingoism, which is born of ignorance and chauvinism. It's not true, considered, intellectual, emotional pride in where you come from. It's just a refusal to think about anything else it's against the spirit of america and it's against the spirit of the amazing race i'll put there's still still my favorite couple but i'll put that down to him having been a military guy um not to imply that people in the military would all think that but it's just you in in my experience uh and i've known a fair number of people that have been in the military you do find a bit more jingoism in that situation and you might need to yeah maybe that's that's exactly what i was about to say like maybe that's uh a good thing given what is being asked of them you know um Um, but it did it did upset me and yet i still think they're my favorite team (laughs) there are a lot of teams i like this season there it, it is rare for me to like this many teams there's I, you know, I'm not a big fan of the recently engaged couple. Um, <laughs> well, especially like it was introduced. We knew a couple episodes before that he was planning to yeah. propose on the race. Yeah. But like as the weeks went on, the more I saw them, the more I was like, oh, I don't think they should. <laughs> like, I'm not happy for her now. Yeah. I mean, they'd been together or nine, for him. nine years. So clearly, like they've found something that works Stockholm syndrome. That's what, <laughs> I mean, and, and I'm saying like two ways, like these are, sure. uh, these are people who I, I don't think are emotional, healthy, emotionally healthy yeah. for one another. Yeah. They, they clearly have a cycle of, uh, he loses patience. She, uh, gets emotional about it. They don't talk and then they make up. This is right. like, I've seen the cycle in three weeks of watching the show. I can't imagine nine years of this. Right. And it's, and of course every married couple has a, has a cycle. I mean, my Jen and I are in marriage counseling right now. And that's all we talk about is just like this thing that we keep falling into. It's natural. But at the same time, like, look, Hey, they found each other. That's great. That doesn't mean I have to enjoy watching them. And I don't, um, it makes me very uncomfortable. Um, 
but uh, partially because like I got my own shit to deal with. I don't need to watch yours. But but aside from them and then teams that have already been eliminated, mm-hmm. um, I think I like everybody. Yeah, I like Yale. Uh, they I re- they really, really like Yale. They clearly like each other a lot, and yes. they're having fun. Yeah, and they don't. I don't think they even are registering that everyone else is kind of. I think. I think there's a certain. This is what I'm talking about about different types of Americans. Americans after being around, having to be around each other. I think there's a certain type of middle class and lower class American, like economic American, um, who sees Ivy League or whatever, and yeah. like becomes like looks down their nose at them before they can, because they're assuming they're going to. And so I think you've seen some of that. I think you've seen some like, uh, sniping behind the backs of, of Yale. And it doesn't seem that they don't seem to be registering it at all, which makes me like them even more. Well, and then when you Um, find out that they're like both, like they were both like on the debate team, I was like, this is going to be very hard to watch, (laughs) but no, like they don't, they don't fall into that. Yeah. Yeah. I like, they're super supportive of each other, which is a big, extremely big thing. Um, and then I really like the two, uh, skiers, the, the, female team they're, they're See, like old they're retired now but i do like them what i was going to say because natalie was saying because i was i was asking after we like finished the last episode we watched i was like so who's you know your team at this point and she was like you know she was like normally she was like i want to root for the the female teams that's mm-hmm. who she usually roots for there's only one left and to me uh, and I think now they kind of agreed. It's the least interesting of the, there were three all female teams going in. There was one who got eliminated immediately who yeah. were the, um, ring, the ring, yeah, ring, ring girls, girls whatever yeah. you call them, like the boxing ring. And then there was the goat yoga team who, um, were, I mean, they were like, uh, taking time bomb and uh, yes. I'm glad they went, went home, but they were at least interesting. I feel like the skiing team is the team I feel like every year, I think I said this earlier, every season on this or on Project Runway or any of these type of shows, you know, competition elimination, competition elimination shows, um, there's like five or six episodes in, there'll be like a storyline focusing on some team that I'm like, have you been here this whole time? <laughs> yeah. And I feel like they're kind of that team right now. Um, it's odd. I usually, I think because they do well and they, they're clearly well adjusted and they like each other and all that. Uh, yeah they're still we're still seeing them and they're still but they're just not that remarkably interesting or funny but i'd still like them i don't dislike them certainly i'll take it back a little bit now because the something that was funny that actually rewound and rewatched was when what's his name is about to propose Mm -hmm. one of the skiers clearly realizes what's happening way before the woman who's about to be proposed to and she goes i can't even do it for the microphone but she like her jaw drops wide open and she like turned like there's a whole body like slow like 45 degree turn like yeah. away from you know um and i was it was so funny to me that i rewanted it and watched it again so maybe they, i am i am warming up to that team yeah and it's uh, i'm trying to think who i'm rooting for i think i'm rooting for yale honestly but there, I might are, be too. there are any number but of teams that could win bro- and i'd be fine with too. it yeah, yeah maybe Yale. i think i mean honestly the three i feel like the three teams we just talked about are the top three Something could come along and really throw one of them off, obviously. Who else uh, haven't we talked about? Well strung. Um oh yeah, yeah. They seem nice. They seem nice. They're not that interesting either, honestly. Yeah. They're not they're not terrible and they're fun, um, and they seem to be enjoying themselves, but I don't I don't really No, I don't know how we haven't well and I think we should end with this. Uh we haven't talked about the head to head, which is the new thing. 
So stressful. It's stressful. I am all for it for this season. Because this season's theme is these are all competitors. Yes. Do you know what I mean? Yes. I'm all for it. I don't want this to carry over into the regular format show. I don't either because it really does kind of, for lack of a better term, penalize the people to get there first. Um, like if you get there first and then you win the head to head, Hey, great. You get uh-huh. the prize. If you get there first and you're like 30 minutes ahead of second place. Now, admittedly you have time to like calm down and realize what it is you need to be doing. So that's a little bit of an advantage, but like it does, it does kind of undercut what the show has always been. Yeah. And it's stressful. I think it's a neat little twist. Um, I bet they I bet they bring it back. I bet it's going to be actually pretty consistent at this point. I, I, I don't want it to be because um, it fits the theme. Uh, and I will say this most recent head to head we saw with the like bocce ball type thing. Yeah, I would have fucking killed that. <laughs> <laughs> That's even Natalie was like, you'd be really good at that. Yeah, it's. Uh, and what was the other one? Oh, the fry. The, that would look stressful. That looked very stressful. And I was feeling so bad for, for Yale. Yeah. Because uh, they just kept losing and kept losing. And, yeah. you know, after a while, you kind of get in that, in the losing groove. And uh-huh. you can, and you get demoralized and you get tired right. and all that. Thankfully, the bocce ball one, um, which is not officially what it was. but It, it wasn't bocce ball, but I can't remember what it, what it was called. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that one is, you know, it's not going to wear you out. And the longer you... Have Absolutely. that you're going to figure it out. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, I'm liking this season.